Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Well, there is a lot going on tonight. 11 more hostages have been freed from Gaza, and a pause in the fighting has been extended by two days. Sharon Cuneo and her twin daughters, Emma and Julie, were among the hostages released today. A member of their family is going to join me live in just a few minutes. Plus, we're going to tell you about a wild news story in The New York Times. It's quite a read about a pardon Donald Trump gave to a very shady character and how it upended a federal investigation by his own Justice Department. Mike Schmidt of The New York Times broke that story, and he's here to talk about all of it. And later, how does the Biden campaign pick a lane of attack against an opponent who is promising to sick the military on American citizens and also threatening to terminate Obamacare? I'll ask Biden's deputy campaign manager, Quentin Folks, is going to join me here in studio. But we do want to start tonight in Israel and Gaza, where civilians will soon wake up to day five of what is now a six-day temporary truce, after it was extended for an additional two days just earlier today. So as it stands right now, that means two more days that hostages will be able to leave Gaza, and two more days that desperately needed aid will be able to make its way in. It remains to be seen what happens after that later this week. But Israel did say today that they are willing to further extend the ceasefire by one day for every 10 additional hostages released by Hamas. And just hours ago, a group of 11 hostages, including nine children, all from the same Israeli community, were released from captivity and are now on their way home. That brings the total number of hostages freed over the past four days to 69, many of them Israeli women and children, finally able to come face-to-face with their family members, roughly 50 days after they were taken by terrorists. Now, so far, the negotiations around the release of hostages have been full of some ups and many downs. Families are being reunited. Many are waiting. Children returning home after 50 days of trauma. People learning that they lost loved ones when they are released. And trickles of uncertain and incomplete information. All of that can be maddening and heart-wrenching. It's important to know that there is a reason for the silence. When Madeleine Albright was a Secretary of State, she became known for her vast collection of lapel pins. I have a point here, I promise. I know it's very old school, lapel pins, but this wasn't just a fashion statement. The point of the lapel pins was to send a message. One of her favorite pins was actually a mushroom. Yes, a mushroom. Her point was that diplomatic negotiations, like mushrooms on her pin, are more likely to thrive in the dark. When reporters would ask about the status of diplomatic talks, Albright would simply point to the pin and say a version of, mushrooms grow better in the dark, just like talks. And that is especially true when it comes to hostage negotiations, like this. When any detail prematurely confirmed, or details shared by family members who return home who still have loved ones there, could put an entire deal at risk. When you're negotiating with bad actors, a terrorist organization in the case of Hamas, And you can't trust anything, and you don't know what's going to happen. Now, when you're a spokesperson, as I was for many years in the government, it can be hard to say nothing. It's not contrary to your job. I remember especially the time around the detainment of Jason Rezaian, who was held for 544 days in Evan Prison in Iran. 
I was asked several times a week for months about his status. What is the administration doing to bring him home was the obvious and correct question by many reporters. And my dissatisfying answer was always the same. We're monitoring the situation closely, I would say, or we're doing everything possible to bring him home. I know you're hearing a lot of that type of language from the U.S. government and other officials around the world right now. Back then, I imagined being in the position of Yegeni, his wife, and thinking how much I would have hated the line, we're doing everything possible. Who is we? What is possible? And how do you define everything? There were some days when I walked out of the briefing room thinking, if we can't talk in more detail about what we're going to do to try to get an innocent journalist out of prison, how will his family and loved ones and supporters have any hope? There are clearly significant differences, of course there are, between the detainment of Jason by Iranian authorities and the holding of hostages. The U.S. government doesn't know where all of the hostages are located, doesn't know the status of many. There are women and children being held alongside Israeli soldiers. There is a war going on. There are many differences. But the commonality is the role of diplomacy, and especially the role of quiet diplomacy that has been in the works for weeks and will continue, must continue, after the truce ends, whenever that may be. It is in part, in part, the trips of people like Tony Blinken and Brett McGurk and Bill, McGur Bill Burns, the phone calls between President Biden and the Qataris and the Israelis and the Egyptians that has led us to see some of these joyful homecomings. We will see and know very little over the next several days and weeks, which will be maddening. But that's how mushrooms and talks grow, often best in the dark. Joining me now from Tel Aviv is NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel. Also with us is Eamon Moladeen. He's the host of Eamon on MSNBC, and he's reported extensively from the region and Gaza. Thank you both so much for joining me this evening. Richard, I want to start with you. Uh, you broke some big news this morning about the extension of the truce. What have you been hearing since then, and what is the latest you're hearing on the ground of what we should expect over the next couple of days? Well, I guess uh, our job is to turn on the lights and uh, not always keep people in the dark. Uh, but what we were hearing is that uh, this is an incredibly difficult diplomatic process. It is incredibly sensitive. It could fail at any time. But they are making some progress, the, the Qataris in particular, and now the Egyptians. The Egyptians are getting more and more involved in this, are working with Hamas. They have an extraordinarily difficult job because the Israelis and the Palestinians and Israelis and Hamas don't speak directly to each other. So they relay everything primarily through the, the Qataris. And they have to work out these lists. They have to figure out who uh, is being proposed to be set free and under what condition in an exchange for whom and what will they get um, in exchange for that? Will they get more food coming in? Will they get more access to Gaza? Um, so one of the things that they've been working on right from the beginning was to get these uh, women and children out. And in the very early days of this conflict, Hamas expressed a, a, a willingness to, to give up the, the women and children. But initially, they were asking for uh, all Israeli, uh, all women and children uh, or women and minors held in Israeli jails. Uh, and they wanted all Palestinian prisoners uh, of, of any kind released for the rest of the, the hostages, the, the males and what they would consider uh, soldiers, so younger younger women. So that, that has gone down uh, significantly. So they are at least talking, and uh, they uh, released these 11 uh, today, 
uh, in exchange for 33 Palestinians. And it is expected that tomorrow there will be uh, maybe 10, perhaps more uh, hostages again released from Gaza, and then another 10 plus the day after that. Uh, the, the real question is where what happens uh, as these host- number of hostages start to uh, to, to dwindle, start, starts to you know, reach a real uh, low number. Uh, the hostages that that the um, that Hamas is not willing to give up, and what is Israel's ultimate goal? Is this just about getting the hostages back, or are they also looking uh, for some <coughs> sort of off ramp? Uh, and Israel is not indicating at this stage that it's looking for an off ramp. And that question, and and your job is absolutely to bring light. The job of the media is absolutely to do that. I think it's important for people to know where the governments are coming from and why they're so quiet. But I appreciate you making that point. And, Eamon, you know, to the point that Richard just raised, I mean, there is this expectation, maybe hope, that this will continue, that hostages will continue to be released. But one of the things in some of your reporting that has stuck out to me was this line where you quoted Monte Cristo, a veteran Israeli hostage negotiator, and he said to NBC, he said, told you, quote, he has to have some hostages to use as human shields for himself. So I wanted to ask you about that. And Richard alluded to this a little bit. It isn't likely, it seems, that all of the hostages will be released. Seventy or so are Israeli military. What is your expectation? What are you hearing from your reporting about kind of where this goes? Yeah, and that was uh, a part of the interview that my colleague Anna Schechter did, uh, and it was in reference to Yahya Sinwar, the current leader of Hamas, uh, certainly the prime minister of Hamas inside of the Gaza Strip, with the belief that they wanted to hold on to the Israeli soldiers that they have, which is uh, roughly estimated to be about 70 Israeli soldiers to be used in whatever final stage of negotiations they can possibly extract from the Israelis. Now, part of that, as we understood it, is going to be very much down the road, as Richard was just saying. Uh, when you start to see the number of hostages in Hamas's custody and other militant groups inside of Gaza dwindle, uh, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to make a decision yet again. Does Israel go forward with operations to try to re- rescue a- and recover those 70 Israeli soldiers? Or do they uh, continue with this mechanism now that has been established, a willingness by Hamas to negotiate? Of course, the demands for these soldiers will increase exponentially by Hamas. That could include very specific names inside Israel. It could also include, now that the dynamics inside Gaza have changed and Israeli troops are on the ground, a full withdrawal of Israeli soldiers from Gaza outside of the Gaza Strip. All of these things are going to start to emerge over the next 48 Mm -hmm. to 72 hours as the Qataris and the Egyptians begin to see what happens next as uh, we get through the next 48 hours and, and the last batch of civilian hostages that includes women and children. So, Richard, I mean, you're on the ground there. Uh, I know we don't entirely know exactly what Israel is planning, but what should our expectations be? What are you watching for in terms of the next stage of a military campaign? Is it the expectation it's maximalist as it has been? Could it change? Well, I I think Ivan is exactly right in that these uh, initial hostages, the women and children, uh, are the easy ones. Um, and this is, we should look at what has been going through, what we've been going through over the last several days as just the, 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 the easy phase, the beginning phase, because, uh, Hamas, like I said, right from the beginning expressed a willingness to, to, to release these people. I, I think there's an impression that Hamas may have overreached, may have taken too many people. And it, it, the, the group came under extreme criticism, including in the Arab world, for taking uh, women, for taking the elderly, for taking disabled people. And it showed a lack of, of discipline. It showed a lack of, of decency. 
but um, releasing the soldiers will be a much, much uh, more, uh, much higher bar and could uh, encourage Hamas to ask for things like the, the full withdrawal of Israeli troops. Where do I, I think we're going? It is, it really depends on, on, on how far the, the Israelis want to push this and what they see as their ultimate mm-hmm. objective. If you take what they say uh, at face value, they say they want to uh, carry out regime change inside Gaza. And carrying out regime change means you have to get rid of the previous regime, in this case Hamas, and put something in its place, change it with something else. And there are no good answers at this stage of what would would that, that replacement be. Uh, is, are they talking about holding a new election? When under under whose auspices under the, under the UN under the Egyptians how would that how would that happen uh, would they try and bring in some sort of puppet government uh, Ahmed Chalabi style the way the United States wants to uh, imagine doing in, in Iraq uh, and that didn't go very well mm-hmm. so how how does Israel plan to carry out this sort of regime change in uh, in Gaza. That's one. The other is how they talk about disarming Hamas and making Hamas never able to carry out attacks. That that certainly is happening, and, and they are going through uh, the, the Gaza Strip and in a sort of campaign to crush Hamas militarily. But even that so far seems to have had limited success because they've talked about clearing areas in the north, but Hamas is still able to operate in, in the north. It released some of the hostages from northern Gaza, from areas that had supposedly been cleared. And then Israel talks about going to the south. So is, are Israeli troops who are now in northern Gaza now going to suddenly or at some future stage start driving into the south and telling all the people who were told to go to the south that they now have to move to the to the coast or move to central Gaza or move somewhere else. Uh, so this could end up being a, a very long and very uh, deep uh, conflict for the Israelis in Gaza and could end up being some sort of uh, long insurgency as well, because generally people don't like uh, when puppet governments are imposed upon them. Also, uh, what, what's what's to do about Hamas? Because clearly Israel can't just leave them there. Every day Hamas says it's going to carry out more attacks. Every day Hamas is uh, gaining popularity across the Arab world. So what can be done? And and so far, aside from these small, and I would call, I would describe them as, as relatively tactical uh, successes, these these couple of day truces, one day, two day, in this case, four days extended by two, a four plus two truce. Um, they've been able to have success with this, but not success with the, the larger issue of, of where is this going and, and how can mm-hmm. Israel achieve its strategic goal of, of living safely within its borders and not having an enemy uh, just across the, the, the fence in Gaza determined to carry out more and more October 7th uh, level attacks. Richard Engel, Amen Mahaldeen, may we all continue to bring light to this story. Uh, appreciate all the reporting you've both done and for joining me this evening. Tonight, more families will soon be reunited with their loved ones. Families like Sharon Cuneos, Sharon and her twin daughters, Emma and Julie, were among the 11 hostages released today. Her sister Danielle and her daughter Amelia were released Friday. But Sharon's husband, David, is still being held by Hamas. The family was abducted from their kibbutz in southern Israel on October 7th. In the weeks since the attack, Danielle and Sharon's family is one of many that have fought tirelessly to get them home. 
their cousin uh, is joining me. Alana Azachik is joining me right now. Thank you so much, Alana, for being with me this evening. First, I, I can't imagine what this last 50 days plus have been for you uh, and your family. Uh, and you have been uh, so heroic in really raising the story uh, so publicly and with a, a tremendous amount of grace. Um, I wanted to ask you about the fact that so many of these kids are returning home and, uh, and mothers and, and wives without their husbands, and they're being left behind at this point. And, and as a family member, what impact is that having? And uh, what is your thoughts on all of the men and husbands and fathers who are being left behind at this point? Yeah, it's really heartbreaking. So of course, as you said, the Veed is being left behind. Every child that was released today also has a father being left behind. Um, it just feels like a really cruel game to be playing on the families. You know, Sean is going to come out and look to heal as will her children. And they're going to have to do that without their father. And it's just another trauma compacted on top of trauma. And that trauma, I think, is something that's so important for people to remember because we're seeing these joyful moments of people reunited with family members. But these children, these people who have been held hostage, uh, mothers and family members, they have a long road ahead. Uh, what, what do you think people should know about that road ahead and what kind of help and resources that many of these uh, hostages are going to need? Yeah, exactly. So it, it looks, it is celebratory seeing them smile, seeing them be being reunited, but we can't ignore the fact that they've been in captivity for 50 days and now they're going to be learning about what happened on October 7. Some children are going to be learning about, you know, what could have happened to family members. Um, and I think, you know, they need support to heal. The emotional trauma is going to be great. And, you know, of course, me as a family member, I'm going to do my best, but I think, you know, um, if, like, therapists who are, um, you know, who are specializing in PTSD and really just the world, right? The support of the world. They need your support to help them heal, to help them, you know, move past this at the best they can. I know that you have said you're eager to hug, you're eager, I'm sure, to hug your family members and be with them. What do you want to tell them when you see them? I just want to tell them how much I love them, how brave they are, how brave these little girls are to have made it through this nightmare that they've been through. And just to tell them also how many people across the world loved them and put their pictures up and and cried for them and prayed for them. I, I received so many outpouring of messages and I'm going to tell them how many people across the world have been thinking of them. That is certainly true. So many people have been thinking about them around the world. I know as you've been out there, you've been mindful and thinking about what you can and cannot say. And I know this is probably on the minds of a lot of the family members who still have people who are being held by Hamas. Talk to me a little bit about what's going through your mind in terms of what information you feel comfortable sharing and what not, and, and same with other family members. Yeah, I really don't know very much information at all. You know, Danielle just got back and, you know, she everything she's really being sheltered and held close by her immediate family right now. I think it's too risky to be sharing information. And I'm sure that's what we'll see of many families who are 
were being released. You know, we have David still there and so many other hostages, and we just don't want to risk anything in regards to their safety and their and their potential return. And um, so we really don't have very much information to share. And if I did, it's not something, you know, I would I would want to share because I don't want to risk anything. Which is, I think, important for people to hear. And Alana, thank you. I, I look forward to you hugging all of your family members and being reunited with them. And we're all thinking of uh, David as well, uh, as I know everyone in your family is. Thank you so much for being with me this evening. And coming up next, here's the headline from The New York Times. A troubling Trump pardon and a link to the Kushners. The story involves drug smuggling, loan sharking, and a presidential pardon that up... There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Today, federal investigation. I promise it is as crazy as it sounds. It also tells us a lot about how Donald Trump would handle pardons and the Justice Department if he takes back the White House. That story and the reporter who broke it are coming up next. We're just getting started this hour, and we'll be right back. Every once in a while, we get a piece of investigative reporting that tells us a lot about Donald Trump, who he chooses to associate himself with, and how he operates. And on Sunday, the New York Times posted one of those stories, and boy, was it a doozy. This Times report was just about one of the 143 pardons and commutations that Trump granted on his last day in office. One given to a guy named Jonathan Braun, courtesy of Jared Kushner. And I want to tell you the story of this guy because, as I said, this one story tells us a lot about how Trump operated as president and also how we can expect he would continue to operate if he was to win a second term. It all began back in 2009 after the DEA raided what prosecutors said was a stash house for a marijuana smuggling ring that Braun was running. As the Times reports, when Braun found out about the raid, he rented a car and drove 25 hours straight from Florida to an Indian reservation in upstate New York where, dressed in all black, he was smuggled into Canada, according to court filings. He then fled to Israel. Not exactly the actions of an innocent guy, I think it's fair to say. But by 2010, he was behind bars in New York as he awaited trial. Braun eventually agreed to plead guilty after nearly a year and a half in jail. And as part of that deal with prosecutors, he began secretly cooperating with other investigations into drug smuggling in exchange for house arrest and delayed sentencing. Then, as the Times writes, for reasons that remain unexplained, Mr. Braun was then permitted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn to live relatively freely for nearly the next decade. And that's when he was able to turn his focus to an enterprise rife with cash and threats, providing loans to struggling small businesses that often had nowhere else to turn. This, as you probably know, is commonly known as predatory lending, or as some law enforcement officials might call it, loan sharking. 
giving vulnerable small businesses money very quickly, but on the condition of exorbitant interest rates. And with Braun, those interest rates were sometimes greater than 1,000%, 1,000%. And if those loans weren't paid in full, Braun often followed up with threats of violence. Among those he threatened was a real estate developer who said Braun told him, quote, I will take your daughters from you. Another borrower said in an affidavit that Braun told him, be thankful you're not in New York because your family would find you floating in the Hudson. And according to the Times report, Braun told a rabbi who owed him money, I'm going to make you bleed. Nearly a decade after Braun was charged in the drug case, prosecutors finally scheduled his sentencing. And during this process, accusations of his violent threats were filed on the docket of the judge overseeing the case, of course, leading that judge to sentence Braun to 10 years in prison. Now, while he was serving his sentence, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan was trying to build a wide-ranging criminal fraud case focused on predatory lenders, the world that Braun had spent the last decade working in. So Braun was kind of the perfect candidate to serve as a cooperator to aid prosecutors. And according to the Times, when he was approached with an opportunity to get out of prison, he made it clear he would do anything the government asked him, including wearing a wire to record calls with his former business partners. But, as the Times also explains, what the prosecutors did not know was that Braun, his family, and allies were pursuing an entirely different effort to help him regain his freedom through the White House's clemency process. And among the channels that were exploit they were exploiting was a tie to the Kushner family. Yes, that family. See, according to the Times, Braun had gone to school with Jared's younger sister, and their fathers had known each other for years. Braun and his family also retained the help of Alan Dershowitz, a Trump ally with close ties with Jared. And would you believe it? The White House angle ended up working out for Braun. Just hours before Trump left office on January 20th of 2021, the White House sent out the news release written by Mr. Kushner's office announcing Mr. Braun's commutation. He no longer agreed to cooperate in the case, of course, about the predatory lender. I mean, why would he? He had a get-out-of-jail-free card courtesy of Donald Trump. And just a few months after his release, wouldn't you know, Braun was back working as a predatory lending loan shark. So what does this all tell us? For one, it tells us that tough-on-crime Donald Trump upended a federal investigation by his own Justice Department. It's not how it's supposed to work. It also tells us how Trump and his administration ran pretty fast and loose with presidential pardons, a tremendous power that usually runs through a highly vetted process out of the Department of Justice but not so in the Trump administration. You may have heard this line before, but there's this old quote that goes, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law. That is how Donald Trump has operated, and that is how he will continue to operate if he ever gets the levers of government again. Mike Schmidt, one of the New York Times reporters who broke this story, joins me after a quick break. The New York Times writes this about Donald Trump's decision to commute the prison sentence of Jonathan Braun on the last day of his presidency. Quote, nearly three years later, the consequences of Mr. Braun's commutation are becoming clearer. 
raising new questions about how Mr. Trump intervened in criminal justice decisions and what he could do in a second term. When he would have the power to make good on his suggestions that he would free supporters convicted of storming the Capitol and possibly even to pardon himself if convicted of the federal charges he faces. Michael Schmidt is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. He was one of the reporters who broke the wild story, and he joins me now. Let me start with congratulating you on the birth of your daughter. And I don't even know how you were doing all this reporting. You either don't need sleep, you have a sainted wife, maybe a combination, but congratulations on the most important thing that happened last week. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> so I, I want to start. I, I just went through a lot of the details. This story is quite a doozy to read. I read it a couple times, but I wanted to ask you, I mean, you worked on the story, you wrote it. Was there anything that I missed or that people should understand um, to understand how crazy this is and why this story matters? Yeah, I think one of the things about the story that that sort of makes it hard is that there's so much there. There's so many different different issues. And on some levels, and, and this doesn't get as much attention in the story, it's a major failure by the Justice Department. It's a 15-year mm. failure. They knew 15 years ago, and they said that this was an undeterrable person who would do anything to stay out of prison. He would use violent threats against other people. He may even use violence himself. And he was basically had all this money to do whatever he wanted and would go on, you know, go go to extreme lengths to do that. And despite that, they let him out of prison. He mm -hmm. was out for a decade. He engaged in nearly that identical behavior. Mm -hmm. And he then was ultimately sentenced to 10 years in prison. But in the end, Donald Trump commutes his sentence and he's back out there. And he was barred by a judge just a few weeks ago from operating in the state of New York because he's continuing to engage in this behavior. So, sure, a lot of this is about the commutation, but a lot of it is about the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, which allowed him to engage in this conduct for 10 years while he cooperated in an investigation. Yeah, and it, I mean, part the commutation, but it kind of undercut an entire larger federal investigation, that part as well. What has been the fallout that you've seen of this case internally? Have you heard from other sources uh, since you reported the story? Well, so the, the thing that, that's significant here is that in 2020, you have this investigation into the predatory loan loan industry, into the merchant cash advance business. These are people who go in and give, you know, a loan to a company for, let's say, anywhere from $5,000 to $500,000, mm -hmm. and they're taking back, you know, tens of thousands of dollars more. You know, you take a $5,000 loan, you pay $7,500 or $10,000 back. Um in some ways, that's legal. What Braun was doing was an extreme, fraudulent version of that. The government was trying to stop people like that. And yeah. they thought they had a cooperator in Braun to sort of turn on the people in the industry. And what happens is, is that they're in these negotiations with him and they think they're going to have this cooperator. They're going to have someone who can turn on other people, put pressure on them and allow them to build out a case. And they're in these negotiations and they're not thinking, the prosecutors are not thinking, oh, he's going to get a pardon. He's going to get a commutation. They say he's a terrible candidate to get a pardon mm. or commutation. We don't have to worry about this. This guy's going to be in prison for seven more years. He's going to come to the table. He's going to agree to the terms that we want on this plea deal. And then on January 20th, it's announced 
that he's received this commutation and it kills their leverage. It just yeah. kills the pressure that they had on him. And they go back to Braun after he gets out and he basically calls their bluff and says, indict me. And the government has still not indicted him or anyone else in this merchant cash advance investigation. It's really, I mean, the other, it's bananas, the whole story, just reading through it. I mean, one of the things that also stuck out to me and was a reminder to me, having worked in government for so many years, is what Bill Barr said when he took, when he, he said when he took over the Justice Department, quote, there was pardons being given out without any vetting by the department. And this is so interesting because there's tradition here, right? As you know, because you've covered this for, for many years, where the Justice Department oversees the vetting process, right? And then it goes to the White House. But it's not law. The president has, has the ability to pardon people on his own. So this kind of raises this big question about what Donald Trump, as you raised in the story, would do in a second term with the pardon power, because there aren't legal protections. So tell me more about your thinking on that. So, so the pardon power is sort of like perfect one, uh, to sort of have a Trumpian element to it because it's almost unilateral. He can do whatever he wants. The Justice right. Department can't stop him from doing it. He doesn't need the attorney general. The, the courts can't step in and stop him. Congress can't stop him. And it creates instantaneous loyalty. So when we're just talking about Jonathan Braun. We're not talking about Mike Flynn or Roger mm -hmm. Stone or Paul Manafort. or because yeah, he can do it unilaterally. Who, who also re receive clemency. Correct. He can just do it on his own. So you you know, the idea in the Obama administration was to have a structure in place so that it was seen that the clemency process was not about rewarding donors or allies or, you know, friends. It was about rewarding people that deserved mercy, deserved people who truly deserve clemency. So the department had this elaborate, perhaps almost, you know, two Obama-like like process where there were every prosecutor who had every case was consulted and they wrote memos. Mm -hmm. Is this, this person a good candidate for that? And they went back and forth and they debated it and they debated it and they wrote more memos and they went through this whole thing to make sure that when they went to use these clemency powers, as they did in, in pretty extreme and extraordinary ways to free nonviolent drug offenders, they were doing it to people who uh, deserved it or, or, or were certainly good candidates for it. Right. and didn't have, let's say, violent pasts or other criminal exposure. So they, they put that process in place. And, mm -hmm. you know, that did not exist. Nothing close to that existed in this case. Michael Schmidt, I was telling someone earlier that whenever you saw your name on your phone, you, you're such a good investigative reporter. It makes you nervous from my time in government. So thank you for taking that to report about so many important things. And congratulations again. Uh, coming up next, Donald Trump is promising to unleash troops on American citizens, and that actually might not be the scariest threat he's made in the past few days. It's time to start listening closely. That's next. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. 
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. So this might seem obvious, but a very important thing to know about Donald Trump is just how badly he hates to fail, how badly he hates to lose, how badly he hates not getting his way. And it's important to know this about him because it can really help us think about the dangers associated with a second Trump term. The most obvious example is how he handled his defeat in the 2020 election. He literally tried to overthrow the government. And an especially scary part of Trump's plot that thankfully never happened was the implementation of the Insurrection Act. It's a federal statute from the Civil War era that authorizes the president to deploy the military and the National Guard within the United States in response to civil disorder or rebellion. And we know the Civil War era statute was popular in Trump world because Jack Smith's indictment details how Trump lawyer Jeffrey Clark suggested using it to stop protests if and when they stole the election. We also know it because Trump considered using the Insurrection Act to stop protests after the murder of George Floyd, but was talked out of it. So it's clear that Trump wanted to invoke the Insurrection Act when he didn't get his way. And you better believe he's planning to the next time around. The Associated Press reports today, quote, Trump has not spelled out precisely how he might use the military during a second term, although he and his advisors have suggested they have wide latitude to call up units. Wide latitude to call up units. Let's pause on that for a moment. Remember, that's units of American troops to be used against American citizens. Here's another example of something that Trump didn't, did, didn't go Trump's way during his time, first time in office. Repealing and replacing Obamacare. A plan that was stopped when the late Senator John McCain gave that epic thumbs down on the floor of the Senate. And Trump definitely hasn't forgotten. Over the weekend, he said he's, quote, seriously looking at alternatives so he can terminate the ACA once and for all. See, there were lots of things that Donald Trump couldn't or wouldn't make happen in a first term, but clearly he wants a second chance. The first term was just a dry run. So how does the Biden campaign make that case to the American people? I'll ask Deputy Campaign Manager Quentin Folks when he joins me right here in studio, coming up next. Donald Trump is promising to weaponize the Justice Department against his enemies, implement mass deportations, use troops to go after American protesters, and also to kill Obamacare. Quinn Folks is a big part of the team trying to make sure none of that happens. No pressure to Quinton. He's the principal deputy campaign manager for the Biden-Harris 2024 campaign, and he joins me here in studio. No pressure there with what's on your shoulders. So as I just outlined there, I mean, there is a lot to talk about in terms of the threat of a second term. Obviously, there's the threat to democracy, abortion rights, Obamacare. What have you found is the most effective with voters? And what should people expect to be seeing more from, from the campaign? Well, first of all, thank you for having me tonight, Jen. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I mean, all of it, really. Uh, I mean, a second Donald Trump term would be disastrous uh, for Americans, particularly uh, Americans of color. 
um, all over across the, across the board. Uh, you know, what we're going to focus on making sure that we call out these things that he's saying that he would kill. For instance, Obamacare today is just the latest thing on the chopping block. Uh, and it's not really a surprise. There are not many pieces of legislation that actually literally save lives. And the ACA and Obamacare is one of them. Uh, and it's no surprise that, you know, Donald Trump, the so-called architect of the birther movement, uh, is going after the marquee uh, piece of legislation from the first African-American president. Mm. I mean, who does that? This is something that would literally rip away health care from 40 million Americans, uh, drive up the uninsured rate. Do you think for, that's about Obama more than health care? Yeah, I think I think it's a petty grievance from somebody who is unfit and woefully unqualified to be president of the United States. Um, and it's in stark contrast to what Joe Biden is doing to lower health care costs, cap the cost of prescription drugs, life-saving drugs, uh, and make health care more affordable. And so all this is is somebody that's doubling down and being completely petty and not focused on the real issues that are impacting Americans. So the president, I know, loves the phrase. You've probably heard him say it many times. Don't compare me to the almighty. Compare me to the alternative. Yeah. Right. He loves to say that. He's not the only one who says it. Yeah. I think a lot of Democrats out there are wanting to see more contrast. Right. More pounding at Donald Trump. We've seen a little bit of that from the campaign. Yeah. But what should we expect in the days and weeks ahead? Is it from campaign spokespeople? Is it paid media? Is it the president himself? It's going to be all across the board. I mean, our campaign understands that we're going to have to have a two-pronged approach to win this thing. One is going to be the contrast with Donald Trump or whoever the Republican Party puts forward. Uh, and the other is going to be what Joe Biden is doing for, for American voters, creating 14 million jobs, 800,000 manufacturing, good paint manufacturing jobs, going after big pharma, uh, trying to restore Roe. Uh, but at the end of the day, this election is a choice. And I think that that's what President Biden means when he says that slogan. Uh, and so there's a lot at stake. And that at the end of the day, this election is going to be about who is trying to, to make, make our democracy safer. Uh, and I encourage everybody watching at home uh, to text JOIN to 30330 uh, to figure out how they can get involved and help, because it's going to take all of us to win. And we have to push back because Donald Trump cannot be allowed back in the I White love House. that little integration of the fundraising text there. It. Very good work. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about some of the polls. Look, I want to ask you this because there's some freak out going on out yeah. there in the country, including among Democrats, including among some of the key parts of the Democratic, you know, base, yep. um, young people, communities of color. What what can you tell us about what the campaign is doing to try to bring some of those people back? Is it about issues? Is it about drawing more of that contrast? What's happening in the strategy meetings? Yeah, look, I think it's a mixture of both, right? On one hand, I always start out by saying that we don't take any of these audiences for granted, whether it be voters of color, whether it be younger voters, any voters who are turning out to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, we're not taking for granted. Uh, you know, our focus is on drawing that contrast and talking about, um, you know, what we want to do and what we've accomplished. Uh, and so for younger voters in particular, you know, focusing on the fact that the president is fighting to prevent gun violence, fighting uh, for climate change, while Donald Trump is, you know, as recently as today with the IRA, saying that he would repeal it or try to roll it back. Uh, and so these are things that we have to be focused on and have to make core to our campaign and the messaging to talk to these voters. We're going to have to do that in a lot of different ways. As our campaign has said, we're already up on television $25 million advertising by a lot of money, a lot of money, very early in a campaign, uh, looking at putting boots on the ground early in the new year, because this is going to have to be a sustained conversation. And then when it comes to minority voters, um, I've routinely said that African-American voters, Latino voters, API voters are not monolithic. Mm -hmm. We do not approach this cycle thinking that those audiences owe us anything. We know we have to work with them, talk to them about the fact that they sent Joe Biden to the White House and he accomplished these things to remove barriers to make their lives easy. Uh, and that's a conversation that we're looking to forward to having and that we've been having. Uh, and so that's core to everything that we're doing is making sure that we don't take any of these voters for granted now or next year. 
One of the groups, of course, is Muslim Americans, um, and there has been um, some some strong reaction, of course, to, of course, what we've seen in terms of the deaths, death numbers in Gaza, and some um, disappointment by some uh, in the actions of the president in, in strongly supporting Israel, as much as there have been some moments of joy of yeah. hostages returning. Diplomacy is very complicated. We've been yes. talking about that in this show. What do you wish people would know about what Joe Biden is doing, um, his focus here? Look, I mean, first of all, you know, the president always says that it's really important for us to continue to engage with folks, even when they're upset at us. As you know, you've probably heard him say it before. You know, I wish this is tough for me because I wish I could come on television and tell everybody all the things that Joe Biden is doing um, to bring hostages home, to keep innocent civilians in the region safe. Uh, but as you know, uh, this work is normally this work of diplomacy is normally done behind closed doors because that's where it's most effective. Uh, and so while I can't do that, Joe Biden has not since day one of this, treated this as a political issue. He's treated this as an issue from being commander in chief uh, and keeping America safe. Um, and that's where his focus is. Um, and so for us, that's the reason that 81 million Americans turned out to send Joe Biden to the White House in the first place. Uh, and it's in stark contrast to, you know, what Donald Trump or the Republicans bring to the table. And unfortunately, in our political climate, um, you know, that the people who go out and beat their chest about everything that they do get the attention. That's not who Joe Biden is. But at the end of the day, that's exactly why Joe Biden was elected four years ago. Quentin, folks, you have a lot on your plate. Thank, Thank you so you. much for joining me here uh, this evening. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington and we'll see you next week. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.